electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. Inflation data trending down today, and like Scott was saying, so far yields are as well. But don't get too excited because the wall of worry is growing. The government most certainly about to shut down. That could mean no jobs report next Friday, among myriad other things. Also shutting down, more auto plants. As the UAW strike expands, more than 20% of Big 3 production is now offline. And then there are some 70,000 childcare centers at risk of shutting down as pandemic subsidies stop tomorrow, while healthcare workers may also strike next week. All of this with big implications for inflation and the economy. How are markets digesting it all? We start this hour with Dom Chu and the very latest on that, Dom. A little indigestion as we progress in the day, Kelly, is what it comes down to. We were very much solidly in the green at one point today, but we are now just trading at just about session lows. The Dow Industrial is now down about one half of 1%, 136 points to the downside, 33,530. The S&P 500 now below the 4,300 mark, 4,293, down about six points. This is now the session low. We were up roughly 34 points at the highs of the session. So, again, down six right now, down about one-tenth of one percent, slowing momentum there. Even the tech trade, which was up north of one percent at one point today for the Nasdaq Composite, is up one-third of one percent right now, currently up 39 points, 13,240. One place that's interesting in terms of divergences, convergences in the marketplace right now is in energy, specifically between so-called new energy, solar, that sort of thing, versus traditional oil and gas fossil fuels. If you take a look over the course of this year, the energy sector spider, oil and gas type companies, up 3.5%. Meanwhile, the Invesco Solar ETF attracts many of those solar type names like Enphase and others, down 29%. But it's been tracking fairly closely up until about the summer, and then you saw the real divergence happening. That gap is just getting wider and wider. Certainly something to keep a close eye on as interest rates play more into the valuation discussion. So watch the energy trade. And then one other place to watch. We talk about interest rates and government bonds often in terms of the yield. Some Twitter users and ex-users out there have kind of said, you know, why don't you look at some of the price action there with regard to ETFs? So let's do that right now. To put that in other terms, the iShares 20-year Treasury bond ETF, the ticker TLT, that's the white line. You can see there the real severe drop off in the summer here towards where we are right now translating to those highs and yields back to 2007. But check out the high-yield bond ETF, ticker JNK, the Spider Bloomberg Services high-yield bond ETF. It's been holding relatively steady throughout the course of this year, even investment-grade corporate debt not nearly down as much. So what it comes down to is this is very much about interest rates, money supply, inflation, that sort of thing. Credit stress right now, Kelly, has not yet to manifest itself as much, certainly in the high-yield market, It'll be a dynamic to watch as we head towards the coming end of the year. I'll send things back over to you. Watching it like a hawk. Dom, thank you very much. I'll see you soon. That rise in yields had Starwood's Barry Sternlicht issuing a warning about the Fed's path of tightening on Squawk Box earlier today. Take a listen. He should just be patient. The Fed should stop because they're, the, what they're injuring is the, U, the balance sheet of the United States. The economy is going too slow. The regional banks do not have money. 
Well, there's another Barry who agrees. Ironside's macros Barry Knapp says a hawkish Fed and the ongoing bond route poses so much risk to banks, he's no longer recommending investors get into equities for a year-end rally. And he joins me now. Barry, it's good to see you again. Welcome. Morning, Cal. Well, it's morning for me. Yeah, well, me. I was going to comment on the snowy peaks behind you. But uh, no, it, it appears, you're not just talking about bank stocks either. You're talking about the market more broadly. Uh, yes, yes. I am. Um, so my expectation was up until the Fed meeting of last week that we still were on path for a potential bull steepening of the curve driven by disinflation, right? So there's sort of three ways the curve can disinvert, and it absolutely needs to disinvert by the full, uh, first half of next year because we've got a crack up coming in multifamily real estate, the banking system, uh, small businesses, the labor market. But of those three potential ways the curve can disinvert, the path we were on for most of this year, which was the reason I was so bullish, was because um, if the curve disinverts as a consequence of disinflation, of falling inflation, and the Fed decides, hey, it's working, let's just stop hiking and then perhaps even uh, start cutting in the first half of next year as the banking system comes under increasing amounts of stress, we had a good chance of, of really having that benign outcome. If the curve disinverts, uh, bull steepens because the Fed, the economy really weakens, employment weakens, well, that's a, you know, that will end the recovery in corporate earnings. Right. That's obviously a negative outcome. And that seems to be what the Fed now is, is dependent upon. That the meeting last week and the subsequent speeches all implied that Fed just thinks growth is too strong and needs to go down. It's as if they're saying they want earnings to go down, corporate earnings to go down further. And then, of course, there's the worst case scenario, the insidious bear steepening that we're in the midst of, which is just the back end selling off and long term rates going above five, which creates a whole myriad of other sets of problems. Sure. It's a risk off. Stocks lose. Bonds lose. Everything loses. A lot of people thought the opposite would happen, that as we get talking about the economy worsening, the long end would decline. And instead, it's going, as you said, the most notable event of the week is the impulsive sell off in the Treasury market. You know, some right. big name uh, investors are starting to tell me that they might be thinking about buying here and that in the long run, a slower economy will trump deficit concerns. Will that cap the, the haywire move in, in bond yields, do you think? Well, we, that to, seems to me to be the only thing to stop the sell-off in the back end. The sell-off in the back end, 39 years of being in the markets, I only recall two periods where the market really backed up to absorb supply. That was from January 4th of 21, when the Republicans lost the Senate in the Georgia special runoffs through the signing of the American Recovery Plan, the 1.9 fiscal stimulus, where 30-year real rates, the portion of the Treasury curve least affected by policy, rate policy or the balance sheet, moved out 60 basis points just on a line. Hmm. That same thing happened again in August and through the middle of this year. We're at about 75 basis points in counting. So this is a real sign that the, the U.S. is reaching its fiscal limit. Our ability to borrow is really limited by Janet Yellen losing all her best customers, right? She lost the Fed, who was her number one customer. Right. She lost the banking system that's now shedding treasuries to get ready for this coming storm in, in commercial real estate and multifamily in particular. And of course, she lost foreign buyers as well, particularly Asian buyers. And so this is a little bit of a warning sign that 
the policymakers haven't picked really picked up on. I mean, no, and I think it's fascinating because Barry, we're in the middle of this fight about the government shutdown. So, you know, a, an observer from Mars might think, oh yes, there is a government shutdown fight because bond yields are going haywire and they have to pull back spending. But it's not really about that at all. I'm not sure there's going to be any spending changes here. And unfortunately, it looks like it, it would literally take a, a further bound route that pushed the stock market into a route to really change the cor- that course of action on the fiscal side. Yeah, I couldn't agree more strongly. We're Congress is haggling about the 30 percent of, of spending, which is discretionary. After the deal that they did this summer, the CBO projections for the next 10 years barely moved. I mean, mm-hmm. this is the only way to really get our debt on a sustainable path is through entitlement reform. Neither of the presidential candidates are talking about that. No, Sh- not at all. Surely Congress isn't. The Fed is barely acknowledged, I suppose, Chairman Powell's admission that part of the move higher in long-term rates might have been attributable to supply is maybe a little teeny first step, but but we're so far away from policymakers even recognizing that the markets are telling them, hey, you're at the limit and uh, being able to actually do anything about it. So you know, this to I, me was a pretty scary week from that perspective. I agree. And I, I feel like I only have time for one more. And I wanted to ask you about, you did put a little warning in there about multifamily, which everyone's been saying will hold up the commercial real estate. But if you don't mind, I kind of want to ask you a different question instead, Barry, which is this. You and I watched the global financial crisis play out as a slow, then fast-moving train wreck. And I'm trying to understand what a projection of this bond route might look like as a crisis. You know, does it become one or not? Peter Bookvar was saying, watch the dollar. If that weekends, that's a sign we're maybe heading to that point. And if that doesn't happen, then then maybe it's just an adjustment we're going through and it'll ultimately work itself out. Yeah, I, I, I read Peter's note, and I, I agree with that point. You know, that would be a real sign that we're reaching the breaking point where the dollar to go down at the same point, long-term rates were moving impulsively higher. Um, listen, it could be the 2024 election. As I said, neither candidate is giving any indication that they think that this is an issue. Um, there's a whole series of potential triggers. I was at a macro conference this week, which those are always tending to be really bearish, and we speculated about catalysts for what I'm describing as a warning sign, not unlike the auto uh, downgrades in 2005 were an early warning sign of the financial crisis. There's a whole myriad of things that could happen and the long end just completely release. Um, So, you know, it's it's early. And yet Um, and yet I have, you know, literally, you know, friends of friends going, you know what? Five percent or close to that on the 30 year. They're all they're all thinking maybe maybe U.S. households will come to the rescue here and be buyers of this massive uh, Treasury debt. Well, that's that. That is the one buyer remaining is households for sure. Um, (laughs) The last leg of the stool. That's not exactly an endorsement of yours, though, I don't think. uh, No, I you know, listen, I I think the bottom line is that these are early warning signs. Um, If the growth outlook deteriorates and the Fed changes their tune and says, you know what, we are indeed done. Um, that's a better outcome than having another financial accident. Yeah. Accident, and I am truly worried about regional bank earnings in you know three or so weeks' time. All right, that's a perfect place to leave it. Barry, thanks so much. We really appreciate your time as always. Thanks for spending it with us. All right, Cal. Barry Knapp of Ironsides Macro. As he just mentioned, time is running out for lawmakers to avert a government shutdown, and if there's no deal before 12:01 a.m. tomorrow night. We will be in one. Our Emily Wilkins is live on Capitol Hill with the latest state of play. Emily? 
Well, hey, Kelly. Well, as we speak right now, the House is preparing to vote on a stopgap measure to temporarily fund the government. Now, Republicans did unanimously approve a procedural vote this morning to go forward with the bill, but it doesn't seem like the stop actual stopgap is going to get as much support. About half a dozen members have said they will oppose any sort of stopgap funding. Now, remember that House bill, that's the one that would fund the government through October 31st. It would limit migrant crossings at the border, beef up border security, cut national spending, and create a fiscal commission to address national debt. A lot in there, but even so, you have a number of House members that say, hey, we're just not going to approve this at all. And remember, of course, even if something drastically changes and Republicans are able to pass that stopgap, it's dead in the Senate, which means we are still on track for a shutdown starting on Sunday night. Now, Kevin McCarthy, his strategy here, his entire focus is on border security. He wants to make sure that there is some border security measure with any sort of stopgap. And senators are listening. They're working to find a bipartisan immigration policy that they can add to the Senate stopgap measure. McCarthy said today that he needs real policy change to support the Senate's proposal. What you have to do is get real policy, just like what we're doing today. This gives real policy in HR2. Because the challenge is what the president has done here by opening the border. You have to get 60 votes in the Senate for policy change. That's going to be a high threshold, but it has to be policy. McCarthy suggested that he could accept policies similar to one from former President Trump that required migrants that are applying for asylum in the U.S. to remain in Mexico or other countries while they wait. But it remains to be seen what, if anything, the Senate decides on. And Kelly, I think at this point, the question isn't whether we're going into a shutdown. It's how long the shutdown's going to be. Absolutely. Emily, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Emily Wilkins reporting. Here's something else the government shutdown could effectively also shut down. The IPO market, which had just started to reopen. SEC Chair Gary Gensler warning that in a shutdown, SEC staff who review and approve public offerings will be reduced to skeletal levels. So could this derail names like Birkenstock, which are expected to launch their IPO next month? For more, let's bring in Dan Primack. He's the business editor at Axios. Dan, what are you hearing? Welcome. I'm hearing that assuming there's a government shutdown, which as Emily just said, all expectations, uh, there's not an IPO market until the government shutdown ends, whether that's two days or two weeks or two months. So did we have an IPO market in 2013? Because this is one angle, I confess, I don't remember <laughs> doing much reporting about back at the time. Yeah, I, I spoke to a couple bankers yesterday who, who they've kind of created teams or they've been having meetings over the last week or so to kind of game out what this means for their clients and for their business. And so I admittedly haven't done first person research, but the bankers I spoke to said they've looked back and know that nothing got done during those periods. So then let's take Birkenstock and maybe there are others waiting. Are there others waiting in the wings or is it just them? Uh, well, there's some others that might be getting ready to go. Birkenstock's the big one, right? That's the one we all know. The expectation is or was that they were going to launch their IPO roadshow next week. And, and one thing that's worth noting is, you know, say this is a two-week shutdown. That doesn't put everything back two weeks, right? It just creates maybe more of a logjam when the government shutdown ends. But for Birkenstock, like in theory, it could still launch its IPO roadshow. But it loses so much flexibility. For example, if it wants to change its range a lot, and mm -hmm. even if you get investors to buy in and it didn't change the range and there were no new SEC comments, it still has to get its final registration document approved by the SEC. There may be no one there to do it. So they could be sitting there 
and holding all these commitments in their hand. In, in short, there's no compelling reason for Birkenstock to start on Monday if the government shuts down on Sunday. And was that as soon as they might be offering here? What was the, what was the initial timeline? The initial timeline we were hearing was there could be a price range and a roadshow that started as early as Monday, maybe hmm. Tuesday. That, that was the plan. Uh, but right now, this is kind of one of those macro things that they have no control over. The the one uh, complication here, and it's not just for Birkenstock, but it's for a bunch of companies, is we're talking about the end of Q3, which means depending on how long this government shutdown lasts, companies might actually have to include another quarter of earnings in their final documents. That Look, they're, they're obviously working on this stuff, but that could delay things a couple of days or at least cost a little bit more money in terms of accounting fees. I'm just curious if the SEC not being at work would have broader ramifications for everything from, you know, credit issuance to different kinds of things happening in the marketplace. Um, you know, I don't know if the level of their involvement on IPOs is much higher than than other things. It's higher in terms of in terms of the rules. It's not necessarily that they spend more time or less time. It's kind of what you need as an issuer. So, for example, certain sort of 144A convertible offerings, those could go through. Even some follow-on equity offerings would be allowed, uh, depending on the type. Uh, it's IPOs that, that are most notable, at least from what I can tell, in terms of uh, what would happen here. All right. It's fascinating. It'll be day by day. I know people in, who own tips are trying to figure out, OK, the CPI that we would use would be based off of the August. I mean, Every corner of markets is really affected by uh, regulators not being in their seats. Dan, thanks so much uh, for updating us. We appreciate it. And by the Thank way, you. the artwork behind you is getting better and better. How old are the kids now? Uh, she she thinks that she's the one who drew these. Uh, she's a, a little older, and she is upset that I have things from when she was in, in second and third grade. And <laughs> I keep telling her she needs to paint more. So They are beautiful. She can send one my way anytime. Uh, Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Dan Primack of Axios. Still to come, the UAW strike expanding once again. Now more than 20% of Big Three production is offline. Barclays Dan Levy calls this the most unorthodox strike he's seen. He's back with us and the impact on the auto stocks next. Plus, the CEO of Bright Horizon calling America's child care crisis a trilemma of access, affordability, and quality. And it's about to get worse this weekend. He'll tell us why ahead. As we head to break, here's a look at markets which have recently turned lower. Um, you could cite Fed comments. You could just cite uh, bond yields or the, the, the closing of this terrible month that we've had. But the Dow is now down almost 200 points. The S&P is down 15. The Nasdaq clinging on to a three-point gain. The Russells are down half a percent. And it looks like the 10-year has gone green now, meaning the yield is higher the way we do it. 4.567. We're back after this. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
Welcome back to The Exchange. The UAW strike expanding once again. More plants shutting down. It's now hitting more than 20 percent of U.S. production. Shares of the big three are lower today. And Ford CEO Jim Farley is holding a call as we speak. Phil LeBeau joins us with the latest. Some, uh, some pretty hot headlines already, Phil. Yeah, he's frustrated, and you can't blame him. He believes that they have put a record offer on the table. We'll hear more from Jim Farley throughout the day. But essentially, it's what we have heard here for several days now, both from Jim Farley as well as his counterparts at GM and Stellantis. They don't feel as though there's progress, true progress being made, not because they're not trying to get it done. But here's the stage uh, that we saw within the last hour. This is the Ford plant on the south side of Chicago where they make the Explorer. These are some of the more than 7,000 GM and Ford employees who have now walked off the job. So here are the two strikes that were announced today, the additional locations. You've got the Ford Chicago assembly plant. That's where they make the uh, Explorer as well as the Lincoln uh, Aviator. 12% of Ford's U.S. production. And then there's the GM Lansing Delta Township assembly plant. That is worth just under 10% of GM's U.S. production. Here is one of those GM workers who walked off the job talking with us within the last hour. Not going to get everything that's asked for, but at the same time, you know, we'll get something that'll make everyone feel appreciated a little more, and we'll be back to work. Talking about that frustration, General Motors issuing a statement saying that it made a comprehensive counteroffer last week to the UAW and that they have not heard anything since last week. That's what they say is an example of their frustration. And as we mentioned, Jim Farley is talking with reporters and analysts as we speak. Quickly also want to show you shares of Stellantis. Stellantis not named in the additional strikes today. UAW President Sean Fain said that they are seeing progress in those talks with Stellantis. But again, Kelly, it's too soon to say that we see anything close to a resolution with any of the automakers and the UAW. No, if anything, it looks like it's getting first or worse or the, the way Dan Ives described it with Ford now kind of equally in the crosshairs and this escalating battle of words between the two sides. It's also noteworthy that Ford in particular has this issue with the battery plant with cattle that they were going right. to do, the Chinese company. So you have GM and Ford undercutting each other as well. They're not even really on the same side here. GM doesn't want Ford's plant to qualify for the EV subsidies that will dictate, you know, everyone's right. staying power down the road. And Ford, of course, thinks that their approach by partnering with Chinese tech is the only way that they can do this in an economically feasible way. So they're, they're at odds with each other. The fate of this plant hangs in the well, balance. Well, they always are. And the rest of these talks. Yeah, Kelly, they always are. Right. That is separate. And I know it's hard for people to keep this... Keep the discussion about the Chinese involvement in this plant, proposed plant uh, in, uh, in Michigan that Ford is working on. They'll license the technology from CATL. That political discussion is separate from the discussion between Ford and the UAW. Basically, it comes down to the UAW wants those jobs, about 2,500 when it opens up, to be UAW members under the same contract with everybody else at Ford, because it is a subsidiary. It's not a joint venture. If it was a joint venture, the UAW would have to negotiate with the joint venture in terms of getting those workers organized. So that's the issue there with regard to this battery plant. Bottom line is this, Kelly. All of the automakers, they're all in the same spot right now. There is no indication that the UAW is close to wrapping this up with any of them. And what have I said for some time? The UAW believes it has leverage, believes it has momentum. And as long as it believes that, it can push these uh, strikes to go on longer and likely add more locations. And because it's an effective way for them to
to put pressure, they believe, an effective way for them to put pressure on all of the automakers. All right, Phil, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Our Phil Lebeau with the very latest. And my next guest says this negotiation is ultimately a fight about the big three's transition to EVs. They have a lower labor footprint than traditional combustion engine cars, could result in job cuts. Already, the legacy automakers are paying workers about 20 percent more than Tesla per hour, a gap that will widen when a wage increase is ultimately agreed to. But could this actually also pressure Tesla to raise its wages or even cause its workers to unionize? Let's bring in Dan Levy. He covers autos at Barclays. Dan, really appreciate you stealing a couple seconds away from the Ford call. Listen, um, bottom line it here, especially after hearing some of those comments, uh, do you think that the shares will be under more pressure in the weeks to come? Hi, Kelly. Thank you so much for, for having me. You know, um, our view on the way the strike has been impacting the stock prices is that a lot of this was already being priced in from a profit standpoint. The impact right now is transitory. Right now, we think it's roughly for Ford and GM, 80 to $90 million per week of lost profit from production. But they can make that up. Uh, really, the question remains around how much cost they will ultimately absorb. We think for now, the stocks are okay. If this continues to extend for some time, there could be additional pressure. But again, the key question for the automakers is how much cost will they ultimately absorb, given the challenges they have in the future on EV transition? Right. I mean, again, colleagues of yours, Dan Ives over at Wedbush, thinks it's, it could be pretty fatal. I mean, he's, he's not very optimistic about it, if, certainly if the full demands are agreed to. Yeah, they certainly won't agree to the full demands. Uh, that's not going to happen. And we actually think that the way that the negotiations are shaping out, some of the things like uh, wages, COLA, we think there actually will be resolution on that. Really, the key question in our mind is around product allocation, job security. The automakers are seeking greater flexibility. UAW is seeking greater uh, job security. Uh, you know, as we, we noted, the, the Marshall battery plant that, you know, you and Phil just referenced, uh, that's really one of the questions here is, do those plants unionize? What happens in, in an EV world? Uh, we think that the automakers are going to need to seek uh, flexibility, given there will be uh, likely a labor impact as you move to an EV world. Finally, how are GM and Ford going to compete? They already have a $65 an hour labor cost, where Tesla's is 45 to 50 Will they be successful in bringing Teslas up? Because otherwise, their cost is about to go even higher. We think their cost will increase. This is naturally going to happen, not only across Tesla, but probably across the transplant OEMs. Um, you know, I think this is naturally the case. Can they unionize? You know, we've noted in the past it's been a, a, it's been a, a tougher effort by the UAW, but uh, and that in part has been because Tesla has benefited from paying its employees with stock comp, with the stock now where it is, that may not be the same types of benefits in the future. So wages are going to go up at Tesla. I think for them, though, you know, and this is the case for, for all of the automakers, it's a constant battle on all aspects of cost to offset these different, these different inflationary pressures, right. including on wages. Dan, we will let you get back to it. Thanks for stealing away. Really appreciate it today. Thank you. Dan Levy from Barclays. Still to come, we're tracking the flow show, and our technician sees a sentiment shift in one of the riskier sectors as we head into the fourth quarter. He'll tell us whether or not to jump into that trade. And as we head to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map, where we have about two-to-one decliners versus advancers, with Nike and Walgreens your biggest gainers. Nike, of course, on earnings, Walgreens on some C announcements. Travelers and Walmart are your biggest decliners today. The exchange is back after this. 
This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Courtney Reagan. Here's your CNBC News update. New York Governor Kathy Hochul has declared a state of emergency for New York City and surrounding areas after heavy rainfall and flooding. Many subway and rail services have been suspended and a terminal at LaGuardia Airport was closed. Forecasters are expecting some areas to see up to eight inches of rainfall before the storms move on. Parts of the city have already experienced five inches of rain so far this morning. Las Vegas police have arrested a man connected to the fatal 1996 shooting of hip-hop icon Tupac Shakur. That's according to the Associated Press, which says police arrested Dwayne Davis this morning, two months after a raid at his wife's home. The exact charges aren't clear. Davis has admitted to being in the car when gunfire erupted the night that Shakur was killed 27 years ago. A Tennessee judge is ending a conservatorship agreement between former NFL player and inspiration for the movie The Blindside, Michael Orr, and the Tui family that took him in. Orr is asking the Tuis to provide financial accounting of the money they might have earned by using his name, image, and likeness. Orr alleges the Tuis tricked him into the conservatorship, saying they were adopting him. They have denied any wrongdoing. Kelly, back over to you. All right, Courtney, thank you very much. Courtney Reagan. Still to come, 3.2 million. That's how many children could soon be without daycare as the Pandemic Emergency Relief Fund that sent money to more than 200,000 programs expires tomorrow. We'll talk to the CEO of Bright Horizons about that and dig into the big impact that expiration could have on the labor market. That's next here on The Exchange. Dow's down 145. Welcome back. The U.S. is heading for a so-called child care cliff as key pandemic emergency relief funds expire tomorrow, and that could leave as many as 70,000 daycare centers at risk of closing. That's according to think tank The Century Foundation, and it means more than three million children could lose their spots if that happened. But according to my next guest, this is just the compounded trilemma of issues the industry was already facing around access, affordability and quality. Joining me now is Stephen Kramer. He's the CEO of Bright Horizons, along with our senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman, uh, who's here to talk about the effects on the economy. Welcome to both of you, Stephen Kramer. Kick us off here. So what exactly sunsets tomorrow? So the ARPA funding that has been a very valuable source of support for the child care industry uh, is coming to an end. Uh, at Bright Horizons, um, we have always planned for this to end, and really the focus of our work uh, is gaining support from employers. And so employers have always provided uh, valuable support to make sure that their employees had good access to high-quality, affordable childcare. That said, uh, many providers uh, have relied very heavily on this support as well as other government funds. And so uh, we do expect that there's going to be real challenge uh, in the industry. Um, but remember, uh, child care providers, including us, are very focused uh, on taking care of children and families and making sure that they take care of their staff as well. And so we'll work tirelessly through what is a difficult period. Uh, but ultimately, this is going to end up, uh, for most providers, needing to get shouldered by working parents who already are stressed by the tuitions that are charged and yeah. additional 
uh, fees uh, are likely to be levied, which will be really difficult for employees to continue to work. Before I bring in Steve Leisman on that, just give me a sense. So on average, child care costs $15,000 a year. There's some headlines lately about how it's approaching or exceeding the cost of college. How much difference specifically to a family's cost are these pandemic programs making? Yeah, so for some providers, it's quite significant. Um, and so they may be in a position of having to increase tuitions by as much as 10, 15 percent to hardworking families. Um, as I mentioned at Bright Horizons, um, we've been planning for this. Our employer clients uh, are very supportive of their working parents. But in the general communities, I think there is going to be a lot of challenge and uh, placement of this back on families. Yeah. So, Steve Leisman, I think there's a great quote from uh, one of the news pieces on it that says, this profession makes all other professions possible. Uh, so, it, you know, and it comes at a time when we're also going to see uh, pressure on some younger families from restarting their student loan payments and so forth. Yeah, I mean, this is from the page of cutting off your nose to spite your face. Kelly, I'm here at the Latitude Conference where one of the focuses is on the Latino population community's contribution to GDP. And I bring that up because one of the great sources of uh, labor and labor growth in this country has been the Latino community. One of the things that another source has been childcare and the additional addition of women back into the workforce. If you look at that female participation rate, we actually are at 25 year highs. What makes that possible? Well, it has been a, a bit of a rebound, not a total rebound in childcare workers. So that participation rate, how have we run these strong job numbers? We've run them because more people have come into the workforce. You don't actually put zombies to work. You can't put uh, ghosts to work. You put people to work. And one of the ways people come to work is they come to work by having childcare at home, however they get it. And the concern here is if you have an increase in the cost of childcare, well, this great progress we've made, both in being able to run essentially an economy with low inflation or lower inflation and high un and low unemployment, uh, it may go away or it may be challenged if we lose some of this contribution, especially of females of working age into the workforce. As, what would you add, Stephen Kramer? And I would say investors still have bid up your shares 28% this year, so they don't seem too concerned. Or maybe they think you benefit and grow market share. Yeah, look, the, uh, the pandemic has certainly uh, taught our society, our government, employers, as well as working parents, um, what an essential service childcare really is. And so, as Steve just mentioned, uh, this is the essential service that allows working parents to go to work. And it also, by the way, is the foundation of creating the workforce of the future, our young children. And so I think it is critically important to recognize that uh, the persistence of strong access to high quality and affordable childcare is at the very foundation of the strong economy. The only thing, Steve Leisman, as I think through this is that I'm not sure how to break. Listen, the, the more the government gets involved, you don't want it to turn into education where it's $90,000 a year. So increased competition. What is it that can, you know, ultimately we're paying for labor. And, and by the way, after trying to do this job myself, probably not paying enough uh, for what people are doing out there. So how do we kind of make this more affordable, do you think? Yeah, Kelly, we need to spend an hour program on how exactly you do it because nobody quite <laughs> understands it. I don't. As, at, at the high level that you operate with the number of kids you have, it is, I believe, theoretically impossible what it is you're doing. But <laughs> as, as, 
theory always runs into actuality. You somehow make it work, Kelly. But we don't know that for all of the other women that are out there, and men, by the way, as well. We talk about this more as women's responsibility. That's the way it happens. I do want to point out, Kelly, whatever the actual solution is, we don't have to reinvent this wheel. There was a point in time when the United States led the world in female participation in the workforce. We have let that slide. We no longer lead the world. We love being number one in America. I don't know why we don't strive for that. It's obviously some combination of private sector with some uh, a government assistance. If you look at the increase in female participation, and I'm sorry, just looking at that aspect of it, it is across the board in the Hispanic community, in the black community, and in the white community. So all races and I guess demographics and incomes have benefited from what's been going on in this return to work in the female workforce. We got to start to think about the future here, yeah. Kelly. We can't keep thinking about what's the Fed going to do next week or two weeks. The totally. big issue now is the demographic challenge to the United States. It has to do with workforce. And if we want to grow, we want to stay rich, we want to beat China, we want to stay number one. One critical aspect of this is getting our child care programs right. Period. End of story. I'm done. Well said. And it's exactly what Diane Swank uh, said as well. We, you know, she's obviously waited a number of times on this. You know, and, and it, again, I would say this is a reason why personally I'm so pro work from home. And I understand that employers have to figure out how to maintain productivity. But um, this is an unprecedented situation and, and one that we don't have any easy answers to. Gentlemen, thank you both. Really appreciate your time today. Our Steve Leisman and Steve Kramer. Coming up, it may feel like we're in the middle of a tech wreck, but it's really only slightly underperformed the broader market on a cap-weighted basis this quarter. And if you exclude this stock down 11% in Q3, it's almost flat. We will reveal our mystery chart next. Welcome back. Tech stocks had a rough end to the summer, and it's been a rough ride lower in September as well. Is it all that bad, though. Maybe not so much. It could have actually been even better if it weren't for Apple, according to Bernstein. Deirdre Bosa is here to discuss in today's Tech Check. Deirdre, what do we know? Well, so Kelly, the last month in particular has sort of felt like the big tech give back. But when you look a little closer, it's really felt like more like a blip. Now, I want to show you this graphic. And it Gives, it looks at the gains in the first half of the year versus gains in the second half so far. As you said, Kelly, Apple is really the culprit here, also because of its oversized weighting in the broader indexes, down about 10%, but it has still not just call it 40% in the first half of the year. NVIDIA, take that stock. We know that it's been carrying the rest of the markets. It reached a trillion dollars in market cap. It's only down about 3% since the end of June, barely denting that tripling in the first half of the year. You mentioned that Bernstein note. Here's how they put it. They said perception among some investors is that tech is in a lull and have given back a chunk of its first half gains. That said, it's only modestly underperformed the market on a cap-weighted basis since July 1st. Excluding Apple, it is almost flat relative to the market. Kelly, it also underscores this notion that big tech, remember earlier this year, it can also be seen as defensive because they've got these pristine balance sheets, very profitable, big moats. And of course, then you add in the generative AI hype cycle, which, you know, for some investors looking at this could mean much higher growth in the years ahead. No, and, and I think that it's for sure that whatever staples were, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, tech, I mean, your iPhone obviously feels like it, it fills that position today. It is notable, though, that Apple is such a big part of tech's underperformance. 
It is. And when you think that revenue isn't actually growing, right, they've seen some declines, they're expected to see a decline this year. That is worrying, and that leads some people to say that this stock is overvalued or it looks expensive. When you look at valuations for the you know, tech as a whole, though, they remain elevated versus historical levels. So that is something to take into consideration. But again, you have this sort of AI boom that is supposed to bring those numbers up later. And when it comes to Apple as well, there's a debate. How do you judge that growth, right? Services is still growing quickly. You think about the installed base. Um, can that grow and sort of make up for decline in smartphones, the iPhone? Indeed. Deirdre, for now, we appreciate it as tech closes out a tough month, but not, not maybe as tough as you thought. Deirdre Bosa reporting yeah. for Tech Check. Still to come, that's how tech could shape up. But what about the rest of the market? We'll get a look at what the ETFs are telling us about the direction for the rest of the year, including a few red flags in a typically defensive sector. That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Stocks are on track for a negative quarter as rising rates and oil prices spook the market. The key question now is, will we get some rebound and traction in Q4? My next guest says follow the flows and ETFs for that answer. Joining me now is Todd Sohn, ETF and technical strategist at Strategus Securities, a Baird company. Todd, welcome. What primarily jumps out to you here? Hey, Kelly, how are you? I, you know, I, I would pay attention to what sentiment forms in, uh, as, we, as we head into the fourth quarter here. If you think back to earlier this summer, flows from the equity space really started to run hot as I think most investors thought this rally was for real. That manifested itself into a correction uh, throughout this month. And now you're starting to see flows cool off. Now, the one ingredient I'm looking for is a spike in inverse ETF volume, the ETFs that short the market. That's more of a reflection that sentiment is getting too offsides, too negative. Hmm. That hasn't quite happened yet during this pullback, so I am looking for that as we start to head into October. That would give me confidence that this dip is finally coming to a conclusion. Right, right, right. So what you're telling me is is not a good sign. We want, you know, maximum fear, and we, and, and people have started to cite that. You know, the CNN has their fear and greed index, and um, just different things mm-hmm. about oversold and, and bearish. But you're actually saying we're not, we haven't quite approached that level yet. There could be some more downside to come. Yeah, I think we're in the zip code, but we've seen much worse. Even, you know, you think back to about a year ago, early October, the October 12th low in the S&P 500. That was max pessimism. We're on our way there. You've got a whiff of oversold conditions on a technical basis. But I wouldn't mind seeing just a little bit more to really increase our probabilities of having a great rally going forward into the fourth quarter. How important, and talk to me about uh, treasuries, I'm literally hanging on every word at this point. What do you see in the flows? Yeah, yeah. so uh, long-duration treasuries really are, I feel like, ground zero right now, the market. Now, keep in mind, the TLT is a bond product wrapped in equity-like volatility. I think that's a a big understatement missed by investors, that when you're buying long-duration bonds, you're getting immense volatility, and you're still seeing money pile into this fund. It's the second... Uh, It's seen the second most inflows out of any ETF listed on the U.S. out there. And while you have seen some panic-like volumes over the last few days, which I think is good to get maybe a little bit of a bounce, uh, I I think it's a hard competition to go out and buy that volatility versus, say, stepping into a money market fund where you're getting higher yield but without any sort of volatility there. So while the TLT drawdown is a record, you know, stomaching that volatility involved and trying to find the low is just extremely challenging for everyone out there. Real quickly, Todd, we have some breaking news, but you also see people leaving the financials. And I always love to bring it first full circle to our first segment where Barry Knapp was concerned about the regional banks. Do you think other investors are as well? 
Yeah, yeah. I think now I, I like when you start to see outflows from sectors while they're rising. In this case, you're getting uh, outflows from the financials as they're starting to decline again. I think interest rate pressure is starting to agitate those financial type names again. So you can start to think about it from a contrarian perspective, but not um, not entirely big flush like we saw earlier in this year. So. You know, I would at least stay on, stay on the sidelines right now if you're looking to allocate to the financials. That's very interesting. I love getting your pulse. And, you know, ETFs are ground zero. Todd, thanks for your time this afternoon. Appreciate it. Todd Stone joining us from Strategus. I mentioned breaking news on the government shutdown. Stocks are near session lows. Emily Wilkins, what's happening? Well, Kelly, I told you at the top of the hour that Republicans were preparing for a very important vote on a stopgap measure. That vote has been taken and it has failed. 21 Republicans joined Democrats in opposing what would have been basically a 30-day stopgap that would have kept the government funded. This makes a shutdown all the more likely because it shows that House Republicans have a serious problem with a number of their members not wanting any sort of short, short-term stopgap funding that would prevent a shutdown. So now, of course, there's a question, what happens next? Now, House Republicans will be getting together and huddling a little later this afternoon. We'll be keeping a close eye on that meeting. House Democrats are very clearly now a part of the game. Speaker Kevin McCarthy cannot end a future shutdown without Democratic support. And a big question what that looks like, because if he goes for Democrats, then he could face some threats for his own speakership. And of course, remember, the Senate is also working on their bipartisan stopgap plan. However, the Senate has to go through a number of procedural votes. And the soonest the Senate could pass anything would be Monday. And even then, it's not clear to go through the House. We are looking at a shutdown down and one that could last a while. Wow. Emily, we appreciate it for now. Thank you so much. Emily Wilkins following each twist and turn as the market does as well. The Dow heading back towards session lows down just shy of 200 points. That does it for us on The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 